Hi, I'm Francesca Maxime, and thanks so much for joining us for this edition of Wise Girl, where we invite you to discover your inner wise girl or guy inside. Usually there's a little kid trapped in there somewhere that has a lot to say and lots of creativity that we want to tap into their wisdom. And it is November 29th, and I have a very wise man with us today. His name is Dr. Stephen Forges, and he's uh, a researcher who has been working on something called polyvagal theory for a very long time. It intersects, and his work intersects psychology, neuroscience, and evolutionary biology. And through his development of polyvagal theory, he's discovering how the autonomic nervous system controls the reactions and behaviors of individuals affected by a wide range of traumatic experiences, including sexual assault and partner violence, bullying, and the trauma associated with diagnoses and the treatment of the reproductive system. He's currently developing the Traumatic Stress Research Center to address the life-changing affects and treatments around trauma, and a host of other things, and the author of many things, um, including this little book, which is the sort of Cliff Notes version, if you will, of polyvagal theory, and this beautiful book for clinicians um, that just came out this year, The Clinical Applications of the Polyvagal Theory. And I just want to welcome Dr. Stephen Fortas. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me and for hosting me on your podcast. Well, it's wonderful, um, you know, to all the degrees that polyvagal theory talks about what the social engagement system is, which is essentially that we're seeing one another and we're being with one another through this virtual reality, if you will, of you being in another state and me being up here in the Northeast, um, that there's still a way to connect, uh, although nothing beats the real thing, of course. Right, right. But the cues of voice and face are very helpful. It's much better than text. Right, for sure, for sure. So much can be lost on that. Um, rather than get into a deep uh, discussion about polyvagal theory, because people can certainly find that online, Google it, you'll find it on YouTube, you'll find um, Dr. Porges discussing it, and there's a lot of research written about it. Rather than get into all of that at a very deep level, what I'd like to do is just simply say and reiterate, and uh, Dr. Porges can correct me if I'm incorrect, is that we're really talking about the autonomic nervous system, having the sympathetic and parasympathetic uh, areas that are kind of like the, the, the gas in the brake, if you will, a little bit more of the, the part that can be aroused or the part that's sort of calm and you know, rest and digest, they like to say. And then um, Dr. Portis uh, really sort of brought in this other part that had been neglected, the dorsal vagal, which is what they call the unmyelinated branch or the subdiaphragmatic branch, which basically is um, an old reptilian part that kind of Mm, will sort of shut down uh, your physiological system if, for example, you were submerged like a turtle and you weren't wanting to, you know, have to do too much and you were just doing basic functioning. And the whole point of all of this, as far as I can see, is to understand oftentimes that when we get traumatized, which essentially is too much, too fast, too soon, we get overwhelmed somehow and we get um, sort of stuck somehow, and we have either a fight response or a submit response, or we're otherwise quote unquote triggered, as we would say in everyday language, that there's a physiological reason behind a lot of this. And there's also hmm. oftentimes a way to move beyond that. So did I kind of get that right, Dr. Porter? Yes, well, you just opened the door for lots and lots of discussion. <laughs> so let's kind of like start on it. And what I was really, uh, what was percolating in my mind when you were uh, going through the summary was whether many of the uh, listeners or uh, have issues regarding their guts. 
So we're in a modern society, and what are some of the more prevalent symptoms that are comorbid with anxiety features and depression, or even the impact of uh, trauma and trying to recover from trauma or surviving trauma? There's often gut issues, often issues. So we have these uh, terms that are in common uh, media, irritable bowel syndrome. Um, people have uh, they're now a tremendous interest in the microbiome and with a, a desire using more mechanistic and reductionistic modeling that if we understand the microbiome, we will fix the gut problems. And rather, there's another perspective one can take, and this is what polyvagal theory gives you. It gives you this idea that the regulation of the organs in our body and that uh, that nervous system of regulation of organs in the body is the autonomic nervous system. And it really has been put aside because it doesn't have much, quote, conscience influence. So it's not like we can tell our gut to do something or tell our heart to do things. But we can communicate with it. So because people didn't see it as a voluntary nervous system, like I can move my hand, I can blink my eyes, they started to think of it as it just there. It became unimportant in terms of the issues of how disease and how stress translates into disease or how challenges and disruptions and traumas uh, translate to disease and how those diseases of the organs impact on functioning of our brain, meaning mental health. So we start talking now in terms of a mind-body or brain-body or truly a bi-directionality between our viscera, our internal parts of our body, and our mental capacity, and even our spiritual options. Yeah, I really love what you're saying. And I was just interviewing Dr. Vincent um, Felitti from uh, oh. Ace Studies a couple of weeks ago before Thanksgiving. And he was very much saying the same thing, that we're using biosocial markers. We're not using <laughs> biosocial markers, that we're using um, you know, things like success and, you know, financial and social success or whatever, but that people could be sick with cancer and that those things have to do with stress and trauma and that they're connected. They're connected. And once we start thinking bi-directionally, we throw out these concepts of correlates. So the initial interest in biomarkers or physiology of cortisol, of heart rate, and even the microbiome aspects were that they would be biomarkers of specific mental disorders. And, but, and then if you change the manifestation, you would then cure the disease. The real issue is how we conceptualize. And if we conceptualize the system as both a top-down and a bottom-up, so it's doing both, then we have a different world. So people focus on my work and say, you're talking about the vagus nerve. I said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. The nerve is a, it's a conduit. It's not even a wire. It's a conduit with many, many wires in it. And it's traveling between the brainstem and the body and the organs of the body. But it also is traveling, conveying information traveling from those organs to the brainstem. And then the brainstem is also communicating with the cortex in a bidirectional way as well. So what that means is that our nervous system uh, which we normally focus on our brain, is being bombarded with information from our body. And so we get into the world of trauma. And the, I, I don't use this in quotes, the beauty of studying trauma is that it unfolds the processes, both bio, 
biological, neurological, and behavioral. It decouples or, or uncovers the processes of what it is to be a human because you lose these capacities that we think that are, are, are part of us, the fluidity of social interactions, of what I call co-regulating with another. Uh, and we lose that capacity and suddenly we become very aware of the limitations. But when we aren't in that state, we say, hey, what are you talking about? Right. And so the issue is uh, to, to kind of go full circle. Uh, if many people have gut problems, why, do, why are gut problems? so prevalent that you start watching all these advertisements on TV for irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, and why, why is everyone, so if you have clients and you work with uh, individuals who have survived trauma, what's the probability that they have a gut issue? Very high. If you work with children with developmental disabilities like autism, what's the probability that they have a gut problem? Very high. And the reason, is, from a polyvagal perspective, is that the signals from the brain, from the brainstem to the gut, are not signals of safety. They're signals that the body has to be defensive. And the gut is really clear in terms of how it's defensive. It stops working, meaning you get, you get constipated, or it purges itself. And that is the body's attempt to get rid of everything, not merely because they're toxic, but this is just like a reptile going into a life threat situation. Meaning when they are under threat, they will defecate because having food in their gut is metabolically costly. And so when you mentioned the turtle, the turtle, if it has to go underwater because of threat, its system is optimized by defecating before submerging. If the animal defecates before submerging, it can stay underwater longer because the metabolic resources, the need for oxygen are reduced. Well, those systems are still in us. So when our gut is now reflecting our defenses, we call it irritable bowel syndrome. And the whole theory or the whole, it's just term, the hidden secret behind polyvagal theory is keep your autonomic nervous system out of states of defense. Right. Right. Okay, if you keep it out of states of defense, then the system is a supportive system of health, growth, and restoration. So it doesn't mean keep it out of sympathetic states or keep it out of the dorsal vagal state. It says keep the sympathetic nervous system and the subdiaphragmatic dorsal vagus from going into defense. Right. I love that. Um because really what I hear you saying is providing a very sound, very well-researched, very well-documented cross-reference um, explanation behind the physiology, the actual mammalian physiology, the human physiology of why it is that we do what we do. We were discussing on uh, offline before we got on this um, show, um, you know, sort of my work as a, a journalist and then also as this mindfulness practitioner. And what I'll say is what, draw me to, what drew me to journalism um, many, many years ago was this question of why do we do what we do? Mm -hmm. And the question that I had um, the privilege of asking many people as a journalist and now have um, the privilege of asking people in a way as a clinician, the issue, however, for me has shifted from understanding 
how the mind works, but why it works, meaning that it's adaptive in this way, meaning the mind, the mind-body system, Um, that it's adaptive, and that, as you say, instead of going from victim and, oh, there's something wrong with me, to survivor hero, oh, I was so good at living, and if you can understand this connection physiologically, then we can park the narrative of all this other meaning that we may have layered onto it as to why I'm a bad person or I can't change or this is just my, my, you know, the way I am to Mm -hmm. then starting to correct and reset to get back into that non-defensive, more calm, more peaceful state that a lot of mindfulness practitioners would uh, really, I think, welcome. Yeah. Well, what you're saying is, I mean, I could have been saying what you said, so <laughs> you, you just precluded a portion of my response. But the, the, the part is that when we understand what our body does, functionally, what, what its job is, um, we start understanding its adaptive features, how it helps us survive. And so it makes sense out of what we think are chaotic, uh, disparate types of reactions. It makes sense of those, and so the notion of like a person who has been been raped or uh, accosted by someone and they can't move. What happens is that they think they have now failed because they didn't fight off the perpetrator. They didn't fight off, rather than seeing that their body was doing an adaptive function of saving them, preserving them from a greater confrontation. And by recruiting the essence, the intelligence of the system, the system went into a shutdown uh, life conservation mode. It was not a voluntary behavior. And once we get this notion of intentionality out of some of our reactions, then as you were saying, the personal narrative changes. So the narrative says, rather than being angry at myself for not doing something, I am proud of how my body took care of me. It's a simple little shifting, but it changes how people feel about themselves. Uh, I received an email a couple of years ago from a woman who, who she was in the late 60s, and she was uh, relating how, she was, how her interaction with her uh, adult daughter went when she was telling her daughter about the fact that she had uh, been raped and, and couldn't move and didn't fight, and the daughter was really literally angry at the mom. Why didn't you fight them all? And she felt so ashamed. And then when she read the theory, she wrote to me and she said she felt so vindicated. Yes. Because it was an explanation of what her body was doing. And it took it out of what I use. I use a term that I call moral veneer that we try to make in the narrative. We make a moral statement. I think so much of people's blame and shame is part of that narrative. And polyvagal theory has the potential of helping people shift the narrative. And what I love about what you're saying with the blame and shame that we take on uh, in that way is I think there's two things with it that really stand out to me. One is, is that in a situation where we otherwise feel out of control, it's something we can control. So I can say, oh, I'm electing to take this on. It's what kids do all the time, right? And, yeah. and, and we, we, we feel as though if we're in an out of control environment, perhaps if we are the one who could do something to correct it, then we feel like we have some kind of um, agency or elective nature that we could perhaps 
you know, do this. It's not my parents who are unable because that would be too overwhelming and scary and crazy, but it's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And the other piece is how much that kind of a narrative benefits a consumer society. Yeah. How much it benefits, um, you know, all of the different ways we could say, here's what's wrong with you and here's what you can buy to fix it, as opposed to here's how you can reset your nervous system. Right. right. It, it, it's really, okay, so let's, let's hold that for a moment and let's now go into another way of conceptualizing the world. Now, I would say that my personal journey in science has been to understand uh, the intervening variables and what does that really mean in my world. It means what is going on inside the organism that determine or in impact on how a specific event or stimulus results in a response, a behavior, a thought process, or even an illness. So there's something in the middle because we know that uh, different people respond to the same stimulus in many different ways, our same context. And we also know that we react to the same thing differently at different points of time in our life or even during the day. So we forget that there's a dynamic adjustment going on in terms of how our nervous system is organizing and regulating. And basically that intervening variable provides a physiological platform of whether or not we'll react in openness, friendship, trust, or we'll react in defensiveness, or we'll just dissociate and try to shut down and disappear. The same stimulus the same context can trigger all three different state changes. Yes. So it's all a function of literally our vulnerability at that time. And unfortunately, we're such a cognitive society. And what we try to do is when people move into these states, we try to explain to them why they shouldn't. And it just result, it just becomes triggers. And because what's happening is all the person or anyone really wants, really, is not stuff, believe it or not. <laughs> it's connectedness. It's the ability to feel safe with others, to trust others, and to have this idea that there are people there in the world that you can interact with and that you're not alone. So whether we use the term loneliness, which I don't even like to use, I like to think in terms of our true quest in life is to connect. And, and our goal is to trust. I, I really, really, really appreciate and love what you're saying. And in and, and another um, interview, you said to feel safe in the arms of another. And yeah. that other could be another person, dog, horses. It doesn't yeah. matter necessarily, but to feel, if you will, to sort of go off of John Bowlby or even Dan Siegel or whatever, the secure attachment, to feel um, safe, seen, and soothed. And Joan Borsanko said the other day, to feel seen and heard and understood by someone. Yeah, yeah. And essentially and, to be witnessed. Right, and we forget. Now witnessing, that's a very powerful word. And held, loving. Well, what happens again in our society is people, when they are, in a sense, telling their narrative, which is really saying, please listen to me, please witness me. The person who is on the other side says, I gotta fix it. And the other, the person who is expressing is saying, just listen to me. You don't have to do anything. You just have to be there so that I can express these things. And we forget that. So witnessing is really the first part. When we start talking about 
uh, issues of abuse, when people hear the stories, they immediately tense up uh, and they want to, you know, fight and they want to deal with uh, litigation and not with compassion to the survivor. And so we miss everything in our world of trauma. We think that if it's not a physical injury, it's now something that can be cognitively dispelled. And if it's a, and what that happens is that the person who has experienced the trauma feels unwitnessed. And what does that mean in another translation? Disconnected. Right. Marginalized and even traumatized on a secondary level. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so really, and, and for some of the mindfulness practitioners out there um, who follow the Mahayana tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, I know he has a practice that's very well known of deep listening, where that is really just yes. the practice, is to be available and to be there for another without any kind of... Um, uh, need to fix it or, or be the, the savior. And that would be the equanimity um, that you would bring that balance yeah. that your own nervous system regulation and your own ability to, as, as one of my teachers says, hold your own seat or take your own seat. And then yeah. for that co-resonance with someone else. Yeah. Well, what it's become interesting to me is as people have learned more about the polyvagal theory, it's informed them in how they, not only how they react to other people, but how people react to them. There's a, uh, a person who just finished a book on the cl classroom behavior of teachers and how a teacher's uh, attitude or a teacher's uh, expressions can either calm or disrupt your classrooms. And it was a very interesting book because what she was using was the concept that I kind of uh, create called neuroception. And neuroception is our bodies, our nervous system's reaction to cues in the environment without awareness. Basically, we're evaluating risk in the environment. And if we... We're checking yeah. out. Yeah. So, so in a classroom, the children are always evaluating risk because it's chronic evaluation. Chronic evaluation means that you're going to be defensive. So if a teacher comes in after having a bad night or a bad day and doesn't engage the child with a smile, with a gesture, with a co-regulation, the kids actually were more prevalently, there was a greater prevalence of tantrums. And so she was really, I mean, it was quite, she's trying to carry this into the educational model that it, a teacher is not merely a conduit of, of cognitive information. A teacher is a conduit of, uh, of engagement and co-regulation. Yeah. And when we see it that way, we see the teaching role as being different. We see the therapy role as being different. We see the spousal role, we see the parental roles as being different. Our roles are roles of co-regulation. And for those of us who are in the academic, quote, intellectual, uh, expansive world, the world would be very different. It would be much bolder, much more creative if people felt safer within these environments. Absolutely. And, and I think if people felt safer in general, which leads me to my next point, is that essentially polyvagal theory is, uh, to me, and social engagement, which is our ability to just sort yeah. of check out the, the gestures, the tone, the vocal tone, the prosody, as you call it, the intonations, yeah. um, the, 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 the gesticulations of another as being threatening or being okay and safe. 
and yeah. that, and that affects us that affects our um our our response our response ability our ability to respond as opposed to trigger reactions that are based on the fight right shut down yeah so so what's our goal what's what's our goal as being human beings and what i'm really trying to say our goal is to connect and co-regulate and that gives us a capacity to be exploratory to discover and to be bold it's almost this paradox that if you are safe you're going to be more exploratory you're going to take greater chances because you have a resource to go back to and we we are in a very strange world that doesn't acknowledge it in in the ways that would optimize basically the human experience and that's part of what this whole message is about Right, and I love this message on multiple levels, and um, I also want to draw some parallels. You mentioned the teaching one. Um, you know, I study a variety of different um, modalities and, and look at different things, and you know, it's for survival, it's fight, flight, or freeze. There's the submit, the shutdown. Mindfulness, they talk about, um, you know, the, the whole point of suffering, or not the point of it, but the, the fact of it is based on delusion or ignorance or uh, wrong view, and that uh, it's due to greed, craving, um, or aversion and hatred. And mm -hmm. an attachment, we talk about secure attachment versus insecure, avoidant, or um, dismissive, um, or ambivalent and preoccupied and disorganized. And then when you use models like uh, internal family systems, you talk about parts and you talk about the deepest, well, he calls it the self, I call it the deepest self. And then you talk about the um, protectors and the exile. Yeah. And, and you know, all these different models use the sort of same, it seems, thing where there's this core of wellness or well-being, or you would say autonomic uh, yeah. nervous system, homeostatic self-regulation where everything's okay, we're not in the defensive state, and then the states of hyper, um, with hyper activity outward, they could be you know, rageful, hyper withdrawing, which could be um, more disassociative or otherwise shut down. Mm -hmm. And then all these models and all these places, whether they're spiritual realms or whether they're psychological realms, seem to all be tapping into this and it all seems to come down to our physiology. Yeah, well, they're all the same. Yeah, and this is the point you're making. They're all the same. And whether we, uh, if parts become a real interesting way because parts are really different autonomic structures. So we have different realms of, of defenses. But what becomes the most interesting thing, this is where trauma kind of pulls off the regulatory, inhibitory, the, in, the ability to encapsulate all these systems in a very proactive way. So we can now use our fight, flight, or mobilization with our social engagement. We call that play. Why is play different than fight, flight? Well, because we use facial gesture, we use voice, so that the body, our physiology, knows that it's not aggressive. Right, right. And if there's violations where people push someone and they don't look back and say, oh, <laughs> There are fights because, and if you watch even dogs play, they are always doing the same thing. They chase each other, do a light bite, and then they look at each other eye to eye, and then they roll reverse. The perfect example of sophisticated play. You make sure that the other is not there to hurt you. That's what play is about. And we have lost that 
not that capacity, we've lost the opportunities to exercise that capacity because we've taken words like play and we make it into computer games. Right, right. And so we lose all the movement and all the social referencing and then play becomes solitary. And solitary play is a different neural exercise. It's not the same as social play. Well, engagement. (laughs) Engagement with another as opposed to with a device. Right, and people get attached to devices. And those devices then become their method of regulating. So I have to go to my, I have to sit by my terminal, I have to do my email because it calms me down. Don't, don't bother me. <laughs> no human should bother me while I do that. And then, then you have this other aspect. When is it good to immobilize? Well, we call that intimacy. And when do we immobilize in an intimate state? when we are totally safe, when we get reassuring voices, reassuring gestures, and then our body conforms to others. We are comfortable. What does a baby? A baby teaches us that. Kittens and puppies teach us the same thing. When are those nervous systems safe and conforming? And it, it's really, what I do is very interesting to see people talk to their pets. Yeah, because oh, they, all the time. <laughs> they, they are now doing the right thing. They're talking always in a very a prosodic voice with intonation. The pitch for males gets quite a bit higher. So it's, it's pet ease voice. It used to be called mother ease or infant directed speech is what the scientists call it now. And if you use this modulated voice, it becomes common. We've just uh, completed a study where we looked at uh, this is Edtronic's work of still face, where the mother just holds the face and the baby then kind of gets into a different mood, different state, because the interactive cues of connectedness are removed, the social engagement system. But we listened, we looked at the mother's vocalization after the still face. And we looked at the baby's heart rate. And the mother's voice was, is it's a higher, more prosodic voice. The baby's heart rate went down. If the voice had a lower pitch to it, the heart rate went up. Because the lower pitch signifies a predator like an old dinosaur. Right. Well, fathers have all this problem, especially with autistic children. If you talk to the, the, parent, the, the families with autistic children, it's often the father that is so upset because the child's scared of him. And what the child is responding to is this lower voice and when the child pulls away, what happens to the father's voice? It gets lower and louder and gets modulated with volume and not with intonation of frequency. So we start seeing these repairs or lack of repairs occurring. And the problem is that when these disruptions occur, they tend, that, like a child pulling away, it's, it's sending back to you a cue that doesn't make you feel good. So it's very hard for you now to say, it's okay. Right, right. Very difficult. So that's where the psychoeducation comes in, that the cycle has to be stopped by, in a sense, being understanding what our own body reactions are. So if a spouse, so this is a very common thing for many people, spouses will be the source of triggers because they will violate a contingent reciprocity because there are a lot of things going on in people's lives. And as 
most marriages or many marriages are of two professional couples. There's a lot of work needs, a lot of drive, a lot of things that have to be done. So there's a lot of disengagement going on. And that disengagement is a trigger. And when you trigger with disengagement, the bodily feeling is almost one that wants to have retribution. This is what you've done to me. Now I need to do something for you. And when you need me, I won't be there. Or the narrative will get into some complexity of that. But what it is, the narrative is really sitting on top of a physiological state. Because the physiological state is that of defense, not of compassion. And we were floating around that term a little bit earlier. And the part that I'd like to interject, because we get into mindfulness, there's a lot of discussion about compassion. And that is, I'd like to make distinctions between empathy and compassion. And although my distinction isn't shared by all of my colleagues, or let me even say many of them, because they're very vested in the value of empathy. When I think about empathy from the literature, from the scientific literature, empathy is sharing or feeling another person's pain or feeling another person's joy or basically you are feeling it. Now, if you are the person who's injured and now you are expressing your injury <clears throat> and the other person who's there witnessing you is now feeling your pain, how do you feel? You feel like you've now injured someone. And what I'm saying that really what I think the uh, compassion was about was the ability to respect the other person's pain and feelings. It was that you can have some, quote, sensitivity to it, but you're not being hurt by it. Yeah, and, and, and to your point exactly, I think there's two pieces of that that we can tease apart that I think are really critical, which is one, why mindfulness or any kind of practice, whether it's a breathing, breathing practice or a yoga practice or some kind of a practice that can help um, regulate yeah recenter the body the nervous system again mm -hmm. we're talking about physiology we're not talking about you know having mm -hmm. you know nice abs and and and, and being a quote-unquote good meditator mm -hmm. this is um an opportunity to reset and re-regulate yeah. the nervous system physiologically that that will enable mm -hmm. to then have more um space if you will to be able to respond empathetically while still holding your seat so to speak right what what you're saying is that there are certain functionally tricks or practices that create greater resources right for the individual to be present and be there basically ways of recruiting the social engagement system and that more ventral vagal calmness in the most profound and simplest way is breathing because slow exhalations enhance the vagal influence on our autonomic nervous system and calms us down. While long inhalations and short exhalations do the reverse. They get us to be anxious. And if you watch people, when they do the long exhalation and short exhalation, their bodies are getting very tense and their hands are pulling in. But if they now slow up the exhalation, that vagal influence is now uh, suppressing and inhibiting the sympathetic fight-flight aspect. So we were actually, through breathing practices and through, without even the more complex meditative aspect, we are shifting that state. And if we think about chance, 
chants are slow exhalation, but they're doing more. They're actually stimulating various sensory uh, receptors in our face and head, the muscles, the laryngeal and pharyngeal, with vibratory stimulation. And that increases the ability of our body to calm down. Right. And we go one step further, and that is listening, listening to certain uh, prosodic or uh, basically mother's, mother, mother's lullabies uh, have a calming effect. They have a calming effect on everyone. And this goes into stuff that I've been really working on in terms of acoustic stimulation to change the physiological state that then enables people to have a different bias of the world that they're in, meaning right. they can see different things. Right, which I love. So yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. Because I know, actually, I think you sort of started with that. And then you took a multi-year detour with polyvagal theory deep dive. And then you kind of are circling back more and more to the audi uh, auditory piece. Well, not connected all along, but. Well, the, it's actually over 20 years I've been working on the auditory input model to, as a portal into the nervous system. I want you to think always that we have these physiological states and they literally become neural platforms upon we have emergent behaviors. And we want a physiological state that we would say it's calm and more regulated by the ventral pathway, the vagus. And that would be linked to the neural regulation of the muscles of the face and head. Our voice would become more prosodic. We'd be showing more uh, energy about in the upper part of the face. And we would be able to extract human voice from background noise much more efficiently. Because what we also know is when we get triggered, we stop listening. We stop being able to process what people are saying. But again, that's a physiological response. And I just want right. to realize that. It's, it's, like, not, it's not like we... They're not listening to me, but... Well, think about these poor children who are being yelled at because they're not listening or being yelled at because they're not making eye contact while their body is saying eye contact is only reserved for when I'm safe. <laughs> listening to human voices is reserved for when I'm safe because when the nervous system uh, shifts into being able to process human speech well, it gives up the capacity or minimizes the capacity to hear low frequency predator sounds. It gives, basically it shifts the range of frequencies that we can literally detect. And so what I developed was a computer algorithm that modulates or modifies vocal music to create a neural exercise of the brain's regulation of the middle ear structures, which in the brainstem, that regulatory component is interactive in the brainstem with the nerves that control our facial expression, our ability to vocalize, and the vagal regulation to the heart. So basically it became an acoustic vagal nerve stimulator but it also triggered the social engagement system. So people who would, or primarily the first subject groups that we work with were autistic kids. And for many of them, their hearing sensitivities and the auditory processing improved. But what was very remarkable for it was that many of them did spontaneous social engagement, like, hello, how are you? <laughs> yeah. They were doing and, what mammals do. They could. They yeah, it, it was very shocking because it was not a learned behavior. And this became the whole issue, even in the treatment of autism, which again became this kind of a 
a platform to study what is it that humans really want in others. They want these spontaneous social engagement behaviors. And that was shifted in these kids, in many of them. And now this intervention is being used by many therapists. There's now over, there's over 1,200 therapists who have been, who have been uh, let's say, trained or licensed to deliver this intervention. And now it's in the thousands of, of people who have, been, have had uh, this effect on them. And there's a very interesting Facebook parent forum. This was started by a parent whose child was so aggressive and disruptive that they were talking about institutionalizing the child. The child went through the five hour, five one hour sessions of this and is in normal classrooms now. <laughs> and, and, and basically the mother was talking about the amount of bruises and the tantrums and being hit, you know, all these things. This is all available through parents. I have nothing to do with it, so I can watch it in background. There's over 2,000 families on this uh, Facebook forum, and they're all discussing the, uh, the, the patterns of what happens and what doesn't happen. It's a very interesting story to watch unfolding. But the underlying mechanism of this is if we give our nervous system cues of safety and trust, which are acoustically, mother's lullabies, acoustic sounds, uh, our nervous system wants to greet that, wants to welcome it, and wants to be vulnerable to it. And that vulnerability now for the child is fine. Now that, the reason I wanted to emphasize vulnerability because we now have a segue, because the, the vulnerability, if we have an adult with trauma history and they listen to the same stimuli, their body starts to become like this. But what does a person who has a trauma history do when their body becomes open? They um, right, so it triggers anxiety and defensiveness, and now several somatic experiencing therapists are actually integrating this with it. And one is Anna Deval, who's in Colorado, and she's integrated the listening program, which is called the Safe and Sound Protocol, with SE, and so she uses it to kind of trigger the system. And SE is about pendulation, titration, and resolving. And now she has a tool to trigger yeah. and move through it. No, that's, that's beautiful. And, and, and thank you for mentioning that. And, you know, for those who know um, what I do that, you know, the somatic experiencing is certainly part of that. And that was the portal to me actually uh, really engaging with your work to begin with. Um, I guess, um, I want to also talk about how this applies in a larger context because we've been speaking a lot about sort of one-on-one -on -one, and of course that's how we all interact but also what is our collective nervous system like and how do we perhaps um, turn the faucet on or off about what's wise with our consumption of as you say certain kinds of music or certain kinds of movies or certain kinds of people because I, I heard you say we mirror the autonomic state of those around us mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we have no choice. This is what, in a sense, the teacher's book is about. If the, a person comes in with a flat phase, what's our nervous system doing? Our nervous system initially says, uh, that, per, uh, that person's not interested in me. And pretty soon when the nervous system shifts to its own defensive state, the flat phase is misinterpreted as being aggressive. So we end up with a very uh, conservative bias the faces are neutral, 
and we're in a if we're in a state of defensiveness, we see that neutral face as being defensive. So it's a very interesting way. Now, what you were kind of alluding to or dancing around is the public media, whether we talk about social media or uh, television, it's all, it's very aggressive. It's very, it's not warm, it's not inviting. And our political leaders are really uh, conveying, if we look at their faces, the upper part of their faces aren't providing anything it's all about barking or yelling at us, and it's not about welcoming us and protecting us. So it's a world that is modulating uh, or manipulating uh, fear. And it's also based on another premise, and that premise is if you remove threats, you'll be safe. So it's a promise of safety by the removal of threats. But that's not, uh, that's not neurophysiologically sophisticated because removal of threat doesn't make us safe. We need cues of safety. So it's not that removal of threat is bad. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it, but that's not what we need. So can I just underscore that and just pause for a moment? Removal of threat neurophysiologically isn't the we need cues of safety. So we need to actually feel safe, seen, and soothed. We need to be able yes. to have that piece be as robust and i think that in mindfulness there are you know the the practices of um the 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 brahma viharas they call them you know uh compassion and 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 loving kindness and and equanimity and sympathetic joy and then there's the other parts that are more discerning like they're sort of more reductive and then there's the parts that are more building up the resources building up the ability to um engage in this way and 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 do practices that would include things like deep listening or eye gazing and and holding one another's presence in that way and to move from a place of being told that you know, politically, for example, that if we take these things away, you will be safer. And then having that somehow be the way in which we have adopted what I feel at times is a collective nervous system of contraction and deep mm-hmm. and fear, mm-hmm. that can be very difficult to break out of when there aren't folks who know how to do the engagement around being safe. Cues yeah. Well, I'm in total agreement. What I say, because this is the voice of, of someone who's been around for a long time. If I were 30, I would react to the world differently. I would try to change it or, or try to break the cycle. I think there's a little bit of wisdom in, uh, in what's happening, and that wisdom is the narrative that we use. And that it's very much like the individual who has been traumatized. If the narrative starts to be a narrative of, of being heroic in surviving, then we see options as we navigate through the complex world. If we see, if the narrative becomes that of, of a violation of a moral code, we start getting, in a sense, uh, reactive and we want to fix it. And I'm saying the narrative has to be pulled back a little bit. At least for the older folks. So. <laughs> no, no, I, I, and I really appreciate that, and I, and I really, and I really think that it's critical for folks to kind of have a, a sense of the fact that what is happening oftentimes is physiological, and that mm. there are with mirror neurons and 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 our autonomic nervous yeah. system and our states of arousal and our states of calm that you know 
they, they call it, uh, you know, in, in Buddhism, they call it spiritual friends, Kalyanamita. You want to be around people who are like, you know, simpatico as much yeah. as possible to the degree. And if not, then you want to be mindful of how much time you spend with the folks who aren't and then try to build up the time you spend with those who can be. Right. But you see, in even working through the scenario that you uh, hypothetically described, you're all putting a lot of evaluation into the into the story, which is kind of a violation of what you want to be. Okay. Uh, so what you're, you're, you, what I'm almost suggesting is, as you develop your narrative, you're creating narratives for the others, mm -hmm. and so the narrative that you're applying to those that you may detest is that they are extraordinarily challenged. So I deal well with the current political situation, except for one point many people are being injured. Sure. Oh, no. I, and I, it, let me just correct that, if you will, uh, or clarify. It's less about that anyone is detestable or that any situation is. It's more that the nervous system isn't feeling safe in the presence of certain right. kinds of... Right. But, but, but what I'm saying is, as we develop our narrative, mm -hmm. that narrative can come into a conflict with some moral or ethical issues. And what I'm saying is that I can deal with all these things going on except the fact that human beings are being injured sure yes and, and, I, and that is a, a dying literally dying and that bothers me from my own core but i can understand the defensiveness of other people i can understand their vulnerability and i can even understand what their trajectory which is in a sense not going to any state of it's not going to a transformative state and this is, we haven't gotten to that point, but what polyvagal theory is really about, it's about when we have being informed enough about our nervous system that we can structure a society that optimizes human experiences, which means we don't have to recruit defenses. Right. And what, what does that society look like? So it's a society that acknowledges that the nervous system needs to move, it needs to be mobilized, it needs to immobilize but it needs to do all these without fear. And then what do you have? If you take fear and threat away, you now can create connectedness and, and you create a different morality. And the morality is really saying, it's a morality of safety. Yes, trust. yes, yeah. yes, and trust and connection. Yes. Um, and, and, and I think that that's so, um, counter to so much of what we see with uh, so many folks having such extreme anxiety, which I believe your son described as having an overactive neuroceptive system, which is, or you, maybe you originally described it that way, inherited you because it's your theory, but um, that, that it's that we're, we're, we're on hyper defense on threat. Right. right. Or, or thinking that the rope is a snake, um, so to speak, or that the... I, I think the rope is a snake, is a flat face, is an angry face. It's the same thing. It's where something that has neutral features, our nervous system says, it's really dangerous. And when you get people tightly wrapped, meaning that they're in a state of hypervigilance, that's what the bias is. The bias is to see things that aren't dangerous as dangerous. Now, when we're in safe modes, the bias is to see things as being safe and that's that's the vulnerability okay here we go here's the real money question people who are in that place of hypervigilance when they start to dip into this place of safe mode or safety or trust or yeah. connection 
I've often found that it freaks them out. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong. They yeah. don't know what to do. And they somehow want to, they, 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 they'll, they'll perhaps even call it something like boredom if they want to put a name on it. They um, have to do something. Correct. And so they want to get out of it, even though there's a part of them that recognizes that it's welcome. So how do we, how do we handle or what do you suggest for that? Well, I, I think the first part is really the diagnostic and that the diagnostic is a simple test. And that is, tell me what stillness means to you and how you would experience stillness. Whether you, and what you're asking is whether stillness is something that you invite into your life, which gives you the moments to explore different, different attributes, whether it's intellectual or spiritual, or even travel to your body versus stillness as creating this anxiety of vulnerability. And that's really what you, you're saying in a different way. You say, now we know this, what can we do with you? Right, because and, for some people it might be loneliness or it might be triggering abandonment or stillness might be triggering nobody cares about me or I'm going to be left in the woods by myself and never eat again and I'll die or some version of that. Well, it, it, that's the narrative that gets put on it, but the body meant that stillness is immobilization with fear. It's a defensive response. Right. Not stillness is intimacy. So we start having this, this dialectic occurring where the same state can be both beneficial or welcomed by some people and totally fearful in others. And so again, the stillness with intimacy could be the baby molding onto the mother's chest. It could be in your lover's arms after yeah. um, whatever, a physical encounter. It could be uh, some kind of sleep, even lounging in your, in your you know, couch, watching um, some mellow something. So it could be a, a voluntary and invited or secure place as well as this place of frozen. And what you wanted, you're asking the question, is how do you move people from that one bit over here? Yes. And what I would basically uh, say, what does polyvagal theory tell you about that? Yes. <laughs> okay, it tells you that the person who can't deal with stillness doesn't have access or easy access to what I would call the social engagement system in the ventral vagus. So that their physiological state is focused or is primarily locked into defensiveness and they have really a choice. If they go into stillness, it's the worst possible thing. So therefore, since polyvagal theory informs you that the systems are hierarchical, the high level of activity is protected. It keeps them out of shutting down. Yes. So that becomes a psychoeducational uh, piece of information that is critical. So the need to move, the need to work, whether you call it boredom, whatever narrative, is simply the, the in a sense, the catastrophic fear of stillness, of immobilizing. Now that's part of the intellectual part of this. That's acknowledged. Once that is acknowledged, then the issue is, can you move people into moments of social engagement and then when they're in that social engagement state what happens to their needs for this motion so do they sit still do they get into a reciprocity does music does interactive discussion work uh, are they playful so i actually think that perhaps play interactive play becomes part of the portal of bringing people out of this.
But what we find out is that people who are this hyper-reactive moving and don't want to sit still tend not to be too involved in cooperative uh, reciprocal behaviors, whether we're talking about academics or we're talking about social behavior. Yeah, right. And so this play you're talking about isn't just for children. You're talking about some kind of play for adults. Right, but we, we have different words for it with adults. Uh, dance used to be one of the ways that adults could play, uh, uh, going for walks and talking to each other. So it's movement. It's the, the ability to get that movement there with the social engagement system working. And once that works, then the defensiveness of movement is no longer, you're not vulnerable to it. So to give you the example that if people run up and down a staircase, their physiological state changes. If they're a person who can't deal with stillness, then that physiological state will make them aggressive and defensive. Right. Yeah, so, you quoted a John Gottman study that um, it said uh, that was unpublished that said that, uh, yeah. that, that he was studying on the treadmill when they were. Right. Yeah. yeah. You, you can share that anecdote if you want. Okay. So uh, John and I were colleagues several decades ago at the University of Illinois in Champaign Urbana. As therapists, for those who yeah. don't know. And, and John was doing a study where he had married couples on treadmills. And I still remember his statement that they, when they were on treadmills, they couldn't resolve their arguments. And what I, I took from that, and actually I've used it in some talks, uh, is that this manipulation of physiological state created a greater vulnerability for conflict with people. And so it's very important, and especially like when you have clients or you have relationships that are fragile, that you make sure that people are able to sit, sit down for a little bit, calm their body down. But remember, even sitting still for some people creates that vulnerability. Right, right. And as we begin to close, I really just um, am, am so appreciating this conversation and, and really how I think uh, in many ways the mindfulness practices can do this. I mean, you know, there's, the, there's the quote um, by uh, Anne, I forget her last name now, it's escaping me, but Anne Lamott, uh, my, you know, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I don't want to go there alone. And I know that uh -huh. there's a lot of folks who feel that way in terms of wanting to sort of overfill or overstuff the sock because they, they, they don't know what's there. It's almost that existential angst that's underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. And I was just going to say this invitation for intentional intimacy yeah. with um, this creation of this safe co-regulation, this, this mm -hmm. idea of, like you say, using things like play or dance or walking and talking and deep listening as that portal to get us to that place of um, safety mm -hmm. so that we're not just defensive and in that state of um, protection and, and, and sort of guarding against yeah. threat really seems to be the shift that needs to happen with other people and then we can also practice it with ourselves. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. If we look at how play has been shifted, even in the educational models, we've taken away free play, we've taken away uh, drama and music, you know, and art, things that are degrees of creativity, but also interactions. They're being pulled out of the school curriculum and in place it's more attentive cognitive functioning. And then as our, the generation gets older, so much is in the digital world, which is, not, and even this concept of artificial intelligence 
and the AI world, it's never the same. And what we want is to have this, our body craves these interactions. And what I'm really trying to say is somewhere along the line, we forgot that we like to go outside and play. <laughs> and that, that was a metaphor as a child. I want to go out and play. And what did that mean? It meant that there were other children outside in the neighborhood to play with. It wasn't, I go outside and I walk around. I go out and I interact with others. And when I was growing up, that was what the life was all about. I want to go outside and play. And I still want to go outside and play. And this is, this is part of what we're doing today. Yes, I can tell. And I so appreciate our playtime in the sandbox of polyvagal theory on video talking today and um, in podcast world, because um, honestly, I really just think that it's such an, it's such an important contribution to people's understanding, because um, as I said initially, um, there's nothing wrong with you. Uh, that's the name of a book by a woman named Sherry Huber, and it's called, uh, the subtitle is called uh, A Guide to Getting Rid of or Getting Over Self-Hate. Yeah, yeah. And I love how, you know, we're separating out the narrative from the mm -hmm. physiology. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what the physiology, if we separate it, it also gives us this great flexibility to change our narratives. And this is such a you know, a welcome view. I, I was talking to someone yesterday um, or a couple of days ago who was a 60 year old fellow who was playing the piano again. And he had been a, a pianist when he was very young and he kind of freaked out at his first recital. He started to sweat and visit. And I said, you got to change the narrative. You saw the narrative as being evaluative. And if you saw the narrative as fun or playing, enjoying it, your body would have responded differently. So instead of shifting that narrative, so that's part of what we're doing. We're shifting our own narratives, even in this in this dialogue. We're in a sense expressing, connecting, and enjoying our interactions. If we flipped it and said, "Well, I wonder what he thinks of me, or she thinks of me, and am I making a logical statement? Is this you know? What about the people who are going to be watching this? What if I say something that's wrong? You know." The bottom line is, I, I was going to say, I don't care. The issue is, the issue is, the moment in my life is a moment of connecting and sharing. And because there's something that has changed, and this is part of my own development, and it wasn't there when I was younger, and that is, I really don't want anything material in return. I want ideas to be out there to communicate. I want to touch and connect with other people. I don't want anything back other than that reciprocity. And when you get to that stage, it's kind of, it's a lot of fun. It's like you could give talks, you give talks. It's not like I have to get this in my talk, get it all done. It's all about, can I communicate to that audience? Can I reach out? Can I, can they leave with a feeling about themselves that they didn't have before? Well, I'm sure that our listeners and viewers are going to do that um, for today. And I really, really just, again, want to reiterate my appreciation for your body of work and for your presence and for your kind and generous heart. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. You're a great interviewer. I've enjoyed the, the hour very much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Ford. Just take good care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.